Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new edition of Thinking Aloud About Film. This is going to be our 10th podcast on Hu Shen. though this is actually not going to be on a Hu Shen film. Instead, we've started a slight deviation uh, into earlier Taiwanese cinema. And Richard, if you could tell us a bit more about you know what these films are, where they're available, and so on. Yes, yeah, so this is a selection of films that's been made available online by the Taiwan Film and Audiovisual Institute. So this has been, I think we found one of the one of the few upsides of various lockdowns over the last year has been the availability of interesting cinema online um, and festivals and going online and um, film archives putting their content online. So we watch some stuff from the, the Cinémathèque Française. We watch some stuff from the the um, Cineteca Bologna online. And now the now it's the, there's currently a, a, lot, a short lockdown, well, hopefully a short lockdown in Taiwan. And as a result, the TFAI has put these films online. So as, as we speak, uh, the film we're going to talk about is available on YouTube. Uh, Unfortunately, it's only available for another two days. Um, so by the time we get the podcast out, it probably won't be available anymore. But there will be another three films by another director made available next week. Yeah. But in a way, it doesn't matter. I, I have made lots of clips to accompany the blog and I have taken lots of image capture uh, you know, to illustrate some of the points. And really, the reason why we're looking at it is as a way of better understanding Hu Shaoshan cinema. So, you know, we were talking earlier about little bits and bobs of history that we've been gathering, you know, on Taiwanese cinema and its relation to uh, Japan uh, historically, then the development of the cinema in relation to Hong Kong cinema and how Hong Kong cinema tends to specialize in the bigger budget, you know, epics and kung fu films and so on, and how, uh, you know, melodrama, uh, and romance, intimate, lower-budget films were really kind of the vein uh, that uh, uh, Taiwanese cinema developed. And this is a, a prime example. So this is The Husband's Secret, uh, you know, which the title alone, it's a wages of sin <laughs> kind of film, yeah. isn't it? Uh, so, uh, and can you tell us uh, a little bit about the director Tuan Chu Lin. So born in Taiwan during the, the period when it was ruled by Japan, attended high school in Japan, studied at university in Japan, you know, frequented theatres in Japan, worked at Toho Studio, then returned to Taiwan in the early 40s. This background, by the way, is from the UK Taiwan Film Festival. So he worked in theatre in Taiwan. Then you get the KMT taking control of Taiwan, at which point Japanese language film and theatre was discouraged. He started making films in the local language rather than making Mandarin. He was making films in, I think it's pronounced Hokkien. So effectively, he was making local films aimed at, aimed at a local audience for pure entertainment. Um, he was also someone who was very interested in theatre, who hung around Kurosawa during his stay in Japan. Um, and so he's one of, you know, these early filmmakers uh, in Taiwan. And The Husband's Secret is one of the few films that he made during this period, which actually ended up being a resounding, popular success. <laughs> and 
we can see why. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the story, Richard? There's a, a young woman goes to her high school reunion and one of her school friends isn't there. And on the way out, she meets this, this school friend and it turns out the, you know, the, the, the reason why this, the other friend was not at the reunion is that she's falling on hard times. So she, um, she had a child out of wedlock 10 years ago. Uh, she's working as a, as a bar hostess. She's having to beg. She's having to pawn her coat for, to get treatment for her son and so on. So anyway, the wife then goes home, tells the, her husband, oh, I met my old school friends and um, says the name of the school friend, at which point we, are, we learn the husband's secret, which is that 10 years ago or 10 years and nine months ago, he had an affair with this with this woman um, before his marriage. So, and the, yeah, the film evolves from there. So he, the, the husband thinks it's maybe his son, the school friend, when she realizes who the husband is, she, she flees, you know, she's thrown out of her flat. She has no money. She moves to another town. She's pursued by her husband. She's pursued by the gangster. She also had an affair with 10 years ago, all sorts of complications ensue before there's a very happy ending so i think there are some things that are absolutely amazing about this film i mean one is the way that it's a real critique of patriarchy yeah it's like you know the men have all the power you know the women are really at their mercy they have very little say and so uh there's a lot you know there's a rape in the film or an attempted rape uh, you get the feeling that um, she uh, she's pimped out, you know, by an early boyfriend. Women have to veer between respectability supported by marriage and property, i.e. the wife, right? Or, yeah, they're on the street, basically, and at the mercy of the elements, and men have all the power. So on the one hand, it's a critique of, of it. On the other hand, it's an exploitation of... The sin, <laughs> right? Uh, so, you know, lots of shots of hostess bars, of nightlife, of, you know, women and slips, right? Uh, and I found that all fascinating because, you know, it's a time in which ostensibly there was a lot of censorship, but clearly it was mostly political because, you know, you do have words that you'd never hear in American cinema of this period, like, you know, cunt and bitch, and, you know, they're like sub subtitles for you right translating swearing in subtitles is very difficult um in getting the tone right and getting them getting the the intention of the swearing in a film of that era right is is, is difficult when you go in between languages in a way it's a very sophisticated film it is cine literate so you know some of the angles and the compositions of the shots i mean you know there's one that's shot between a man's legs you know as he's hitting her um, you know, there's a scene where she's very ill, you know, and the good wife comes into her, her, you know, what looks like a deathbed or what we think is a deathbed. And really everything is out of focus except for the woman coming in to help. I mean, there are shots like that that are really wonderful. Um, it's beautifully filmed and lit. And we saw it in a magnificent restoration, actually, you know, which was able to rescue the film to really high quality except for a few minutes at the end, yeah? It's very engrossing, and actually it's completely plot-laden for a film that in a, in, a, in a way is very simple. Yeah, so it's like these, like you said, is these two ch uh, school friends, one who was this guy's mistress, 
the other one who married him. They don't know, uh, either of the women know about this, you know, and then, you know, there's misfortune upon misfortune upon plot plot upon misfortune, more misfortune, more misfortune, more misfortune, (laughs) until the end where what looks like a kind of a misfortune turns into a fortune. (laughs) Right? So you wonder how many twists could this basic situation get? But actually, I was engrossed as well, you know. <laughs> and it's quite, I mean, this, the structure of it is interesting because, I mean, there's a p- one point where there's a, as far as I could work it out, the husband has a flashback to his affair with, with, the, with the bar hostess. And within that flashback, the bar hostess then has a flashback to her affair with the... Yes. Um, with the gangster, and luckily that was—I thought—is the gangster then going to have a flashback within that? You know, but but uh, that kind of nested flashback is really odd. It's really odd, and it was really fascinating, you know. And this is a very archetypal melodrama, so these flashbacks are both to moments of bliss, moments of happiness that they will never forget and that make life worth living, to moments of abuse and degradation you know, that were what preceded it or, you know, or what they returned to. Yeah, this has a very philosophical uh, thing about it just being her misfortune and she's got to bear it and, you know, it's almost like nothing could be done about her. So it's not even a blaming these awful no, men and what no. they've done to her, right? It's almost like it's just my fate. <laughs> so on the one hand, I thought the film was very sophisticated in many ways. And on the other hand, it's very crude, right? You know, the use of music is very crude. So, I mean, it has wonderful selections of music, right? Uh, Often orchestral, largely classical, but with a lot of the hits of the day, sometimes uh, heavy-handedly ironic. So, you know, Home Home on the Range is being played as everything is old, (laughs) right? Like, (laughs) Uh, but... The editing and uh, uh, the, the, the sound editing and the editing itself are really clumsy, right? So it's very choppy. You know, there's no music beginning in one shot and continuing on to the other. It's like chop, chop, <laughs> right? Like, uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, and of course, some of the acting is truly atrocious, right? Like, you know. So you can see how the director often does a very good job of um, of using the actors, of using the personalities, of framing them sympathetically, and of um, evoking or expressing the emotion, you know, through the placement of the body or the hair or the lighting or the clothes, right? As soon as the actors are called on to do some emoting, <laughs> it's really theatrical, like, you know, put your hand on your forehead, <laughs> like, yeah. oh, no, <laughs> or bowing your head, I'm so ashamed, I can't look at you, right, you know, so, I mean, yeah, so it's like this, this weird and fascinating combination of, you know, cineliterate sophistication and real crudity, which I imagine must come from means, really, rather well, than... Yeah, again, again, the stuff we were talking about with the earlier Ho Shen films around the, you know, the, the, the resources available in the Taiwanese film industry in, you know, in, in the 80s, and this was 20 years earlier. But I think what, what I found interesting about this is, for all its 
crudity in some cases, it's a very accomplished piece of filmmaking and it sort of shows one element of the Taiwanese film industry 20 years before the new Taiwanese cinema. And it's very interesting to see that. I wanted to think about it some more. So, you know, when I was looking at it, one of the things that was very interesting is that the focus seemed to be on um, a distinctions amongst class. So really the focus is about a middle, upper middle class and a woman who's fallen from that class and onto the streets, yeah? So I read one review of it from, it was from Windows on Worlds. They pick up on some aspects that I hadn't quite picked up on about the class and about where the money is and about the gender relations. One thing I, that wasn't apparent to me is that money in the family is from the Weiss family. So the, the husband is, yes. is of a kind of lower class. And the reason he's abandoned his girlfriend and married the wife is because he's marrying into money. And that's that's why all yes. the stuff with the baby and who's going to look after the baby, the wife's family doesn't want the baby to be adopted because they don't want the family money to pass to this illegitimate child. So there's all those aspects of it. And also the husband apparently has taken the wife's surname. So he has a different ah. surname in the early scenes than the later scenes. That I didn't pick up. The, well, I did, but I, I didn't make sense of it. But the money and the property thing, I definitely picked up. The film is very explicit about that. Right, he's married into her family. It's not that she's married into his, you know. And then she has this line where she says the family's complaining about the, about the money going to, you know, this child who's not hers, who's his. And she says something like, well, the family property is my property and no one needs to have any say on it except me. <laughs> so, which, which is also an interesting twist on what seem very patriarchal relations because, in fact, it ends up, it, it does end up being that, but it also gives the last word to this woman. Well, the, the ending is tricky because, you know, the uh, uh, wife who has the property and the name gets the last word in the middle class milieu. But then there's that epilogue, right, where, you know, the fallen woman meets the guy who used to pimp her, who has had a complete change of heart in jail and will now marry her, you know, and and promise to look after her. But so but actually he seems to have all the power and all the decision making in that. So there's a real mm. class discrepancy yeah, yeah. around, you know, how those things are made available to yeah. the characters. I did find it interesting that, you know, the two women are obviously from middle class backgrounds because you know, they went to the same school, which sounds like a very posh school, you know, that can afford expensive reunions. So the, the the one who became a bar hostess, she made a couple of mistakes and ended up going out with this with the guy who pimped her out. And that's why her life went off the rails. I got that, but I just didn't find it very unsatisfactory because, you know, just like uh, the woman with property, I mean, didn't she have family or brothers or uncles or, you know, who might have padded over the first mistake or... You, you get very little backstory about her fall. And yet her fall is the structuring fall. It's, like, it's, it's where everything arises from. Yeah. You know, her relationship with this other women, the, the two illegitimate children, the being forced to becoming a hostess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I must say, with all of the crudity and so on, I loved it. But I was wondering what you thought about, you know, why would a British cinephile want to watch this film? 
I found it incredibly entertaining. I mean, regardless of the fact we're we're doing this kind of journey through Taiwanese cinema, um, I, it's an incredibly entertaining film. I think I think yes, you you have to you would have to have a tolerance for low production values and 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 for a kind of B B movie um, type of uh, genre. So, but you know, if if you're familiar with watching you know American B movies or British B movies of the same period or French new wave cinema of the sixties or something. It's nothing like French new wave cinema of the sixties, but it's, 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 it's fascinating no, uh, to see how these things compare and what was, you know, what was happening in different, uh, different cultures. And it, and it's fascinating. You know, essentially you're watching this commercial entertaining melodrama, but then you think about the fact, okay, this has titles in English and in Mandarin. The reason it has Mandarin subtitles is, is that the film is not in Mandarin. It's, it's in the, 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 the local language. Um, and so there's a whole layer of, of you know, politics there and, and cultural stuff there about why why this film at that point was made in that language. I would agree with that, but I would also add a, a sociological level. It was very clear from the beginning that a lot of the scenes were shot on location, right? So, you know, you have people riding bicycles on the street and often you see them glancing towards the camera as in, yeah, what's happening here? Um, so you get a real feel for, you know, what the... what the country was like physically, yeah, the geography of the capital, yeah, and what it looked like in this period, right? It is filming those which, real which is interesting because we've just been watching the you know the Ho Shao Shen coming of age films where they were set in the city or in the country in that period. I mean, so he was he was filming in the mid eighties, setting it in the sixties, and the, but this is this was filmed on those locations in the 60s. And I have to say, actually, Tai Pai looked a lot nicer in this film than it, than it did in the Ho Shao Shen films. <laughs> <laughs> Only because it was shot pro- in black and white probably and it was more it. neon. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, it does look beautiful, actually. Whoever did the lighting and the cinematography, which I was not able to find credits for, kudos to them, whoever they might be. And I hope to, to discover who they are soon. Uh, it's a wonderful job of filming and lighting. The film looks beautiful, um, which which is you know very much worth saying because one doesn't really expect them to. There are technical issues, but it but it, it looks great. I mean, it's, it's it's made by people who know what they're doing. The lighting is great. The the, the, ca- the camera work is great. Um, the, it uses you know some of the the stuff we've seen we've commented on in Ho Shao Shen films in terms of scenes through windows and using the kind of screens and creating frames within frames. There's not a huge amount of that, but that is there. And you think, yeah, he, it's interesting. I read an article uh, about um, Ho Shao Shen talking about his, the, yeah, the films, the cinema he saw as a, as a teenager. And he talks entirely about non-Taiwanese films. He t- talks about, you know, Italian neorealism and French New Wave and so on. And I think, yeah, you know, I kind of think he, but he must have seen this kind of film. Well, it's the kind of film his mom would have taken him to. You know, so, yeah, he, he is how not to treat uh, women. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, very interestingly, the women are often treated more sympathetically, you know, than in a lot of Hu Shaoshan films. You know what they want, what they feel, what they've suffered, what they long for, what they can't get, what the barriers to their happiness are. And, you know, and you also have this incredible bond between women in all of the films, yeah, throughout the film, yeah? There's always, like, women who help out, you know, at the moment where it looks like there is no way out. The helping hand is always... That's right, yeah, because, I mean, there's this whole plot around when the the, the hostess is 
has been abandoned again and she's being looked after by another by another hostess who then does some detective work and tracks down the husband based on the badge that the boy's wearing and the other, the other thing i found really interesting was the the narration that keeps popping up during the film i haven't figured that out what it, who yeah who exactly is it? so so basically uh, per- periodically during the film this it's it's always a woman's voice and it's clear, it's clearly a, an objective observer it's not a character speaking it's a you know it's an omniscient narrator i guess just and sometimes as one review said this judgmental voice occasionally pops up and just says how can be how can civilized people behave this way this is disgraceful um so sometimes you know sometimes judging the character's behavior sometimes explaining what's going on so um so sometimes as you go into a flashback the narrator will suddenly pop up and say and he sat there and he remembered happier times past. And then you go into, go into the flashback. What is the word? What is the word for the, you know, in Japan, when they were doing silent films, there was always a person narrating. Yeah, it's a story. Ben, Benshi, which I, I'm going to, which I could either claim that I knew or, or I could admit that I looked it up just before we, we started speaking, because <laughs> that's what occurred to me, that, 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 this is, that this is that kind of influence, because you that would, as I understand it, wouldn't just be like a silent film intertitle. That would be someone explaining the plot, commenting on the plot, commenting on the characters. But also, but the other interesting thing is that that tradition grew out apparently of kabuki theatre, and uh, you know the director of this film had a had a Japanese theatrical background too. So it it, it did, did strike me that that's perhaps what what was going on here. But the other the other thing that was odd. So in addition to those points where the the narrator pops up to start giving the characters a telling off. Sometimes there would be a, uh, there wouldn't be any narration, but there'd be a subtitle. And the subtitle, as I say, being in Mandarin and in English, there'd be a subtitle that says, you know, meanwhile, 30 years ago or something. And that almost like a silent film intertitle. So I, I didn't, couldn't quite work out where those were coming from because presumably that was part of the original film. The, so, but that's only in Mandarin, not in the Taiwanese language so i don't know but yeah, but yeah I, the, I found that the narration uh, was an interesting thing and and, and I, I think you're right it, it did strike me that it, it's perhaps an influence of benshi but uh. yeah it was a fat so it's a fascinating hodgepodge <laughs> of you know a way the wages of sin film a kind of a maternal melodrama i thought it was wonderful because I know one shouldn't read these films sociologically because films are always aspirational. You know, nobody ever lived the way that characters in 1950s American cinema live in these huge houses and, you know, and so on. So, you know, one always has to take it with a grain of salt. But, you know, putting the salt in, you know, one still gets a sense of what are the prohibitions, what are the desires, what people aspire to dress like, you know, what the real fears were in the society, hawking your coat, you know, when it's... Yeah, winter. she was like she was like the little yeah. match girl, wasn't she? So she pawned her coat yeah. and she, then, she, then it starts raining. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was wonderful. And, you know, kind of people must have identified with that or recognized that. I mean, you know, the reason why scenes like that appear with Lillian Gish in the cinema of the teens is presumably because it had some social legibility. Yeah, people could understand that as possibly happening or they saw people on the streets like that, right? Whereas like 40 years later, you don't see them. So so there's something 
that resonates at least within the realm of possibility in this film, both, you know, what the dangers or pitfalls are and what the aspirations are, which is, you know, to security and family and respectability and, you know, kind of what that means in a culture in which shame and losing face and so on seem to be so imbricated, right? Like, you know, like all of this bowing their head down and the inability to look at someone, right? So I thought all of that was like really fascinating and the reason to see the film on its own, really. Yeah, I'd say these are only available for a short period, but these are really nice restorations. They've been shown at the the Edinburgh Taiwanese Film Festival that was online last year. So hopefully these, these are restorations that will have a... A further life uh, and we're going to rush this out in the hopes that you know you might be able to see it on its last few days or even if not there will be as I say there are three other three other films from another director one of the films is called the bride who returned from hell so i mean that you can't you can't <laughs> not watch a film called that can you right <laughs> <laughs> so uh we highly recommend it uh we are thinking aloud about them i'm jose i'm richard thank you very much for listening Bye. Bye-bye.